Well, it is Resurrection Sunday, and what a, what a blessed time. And uh, we get to celebrate together. So I'll do it one more time. He is risen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and quiet our hearts now. We, we are excited by what we have sung, and we are excited by what we get to celebrate today. And we want to be excited about you, about what you have accomplished, about what you are accomplishing, and what you will accomplish. Help us, Lord, to be focused on you. Help us to see from your word what is true what is truth. I pray that we would set aside those things uh, that would distract us, the plans for later. We're going to have wonderful dinners and, and uh, time with family maybe, or uh, maybe this is a tough time of year for us for different reasons. I pray that you would help us to set those things aside and to focus on you, focus on your word, and particularly on the resurrection of Christ. We look to you and we give you glory. We worship you and we bow down to you as our God. We don't bow down to anyone or anything else. There is none like you. We ask for your blessing this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be speaking this morning from Romans chapter 4. And you can see that's not a typo in your bulletin. We really are going to do several chapters. But... um, The reason I want to do that is so we can get a good idea, a good grasp of what Christianity really is about. This time of year, it's a holiday and and you can see, you know, happy Easter and things like that. You can see the Easter bunny and the eggs and all that kind of stuff. And and, uh, there's a lot to, you know, think about. And I kind of wonder sometimes when I look at our culture and and they're celebrating Easter also, and just in their own way, and, and what, what does it mean? And so uh, I asked the question for us this morning, what is Christianity really all about? Here we started off our service in the water with baptisms, and we talked about uh, why we baptize, and, and uh, it's a picture of entering into the Christian life, entering into the faith. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. Or is it just a ritual? that Christians do and other religions have different rituals and other uh, social groups maybe have different uh, rituals of how you enter into that social group. And so I wonder sometimes when people think about Christianity and they think about the Bible and they think about Jesus, I wonder what they think about uh, these things. Is it actual truth? that we're talking about? Do do, do they look at us and think, do Christians really believe that stuff? Do they really believe what they believe? I I wonder that. And so it always always kind of is a, a mental exercise for me to think about the way other people think about Christianity and then, and then contrast that with what the Bible teaches us. So I want to talk this morning about what is real and what is true in Christianity. That this is not just uh, a, the best option or uh, amongst religions, amongst world religions. It's not just an option, one among many, and this is the one we do because we were born here or something cultural like that. I want us to think about it in terms of reality. 
ultimate reality and things that really are true. I know in our day and age, there is a tendency amongst uh, newer, uh, younger generations, my age and, and younger amongst our generations, there's a real tendency not to be all that concerned with what's ultimately really true that doesn't really matter. What really matters is my experience of life. What really matters is what happens to me or what I think or perhaps what you think of me or something like that. And, and uh, that has, is creeping in in very dangerous ways into understanding about what is true spiritual reality. Because for a lot of people, there is no true spiritual ra- reality and it wouldn't really matter if there were my experience, my opinion, my, my, my is the point. I'm the point, really. And so... As we come to our passage today, I've, I've chosen this passage uh, not just because it's a great challenge to go through these chapters, and, and we are going to do several chapters, but to I want to pick up with the argument that Paul is making, and I want to see these questions and answer these questions in the way Paul does, in the way the Bible does, so that we can see that we're not talking about one competing social group versus another one. We're not talking about one competing idea that could theoretically be true or have some merit versus another one, but we're talking about actually what is real and and what is true, what is actually truth. And so if you would open up to uh, Romans chapter 4, we're going to start just in the very last verse there of Romans chapter 4 and... and, uh, I'll start, in, I'll start in verse 23 because it's a complete sentence. He's been making an argument about Abraham. He's been talking about Abraham as this historical figure who lived a couple thousand years before this time. And God made promises to him and he believed God that God would actually do those promises. And he's made an argument there in chapter 4 about uh, Abraham being declared righteous because he believed God, etc. And so we pick up the story where, where, uh, where it hits us. There in uh, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So it, that is righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. I want to pause there for a second. He was delivered up for our trespasses. When we think about Christianity, the symbol of Christianity, of course, is the cross. And that's on purpose. That's because uh, the Bible teaches us that we are sinners. And the cross is God dealing with that sin so that the thing that that would block us from being in God's presence, the thing that would cause us to be recipients of God's wrath because God is holy and just and we're lawbreakers, God deals with that in the cross because he sends his own son who is born a human, just like us, lives a life just like us, except he always obeyed God, where we continually disobey God. He always honored God, where we continually don't. And so he, in our place, went to the cross to die on that cross, bearing the punishment for our sins, so that we might be forgiven. So that's the story a core part of the story of Christianity. And that's why the cross is symbolic for Christianity. That's why we think of the cross when we talk about that. And so he was delivered up for our trespasses. That's nothing new. Jesus died for our sins. Uh, People know that. People understand that to some degree. They know those words. And so it doesn't shock us when when, uh, Paul says that there in verse 25 of chapter 4, who was delivered up for our trespasses. It's what comes next that's interesting to me and the reason I want to talk about this topic today. 
and was raised for our justification. So though the cross is the symbol of Christianity, it's the, it's the heart and it's the core of Christianity, it explains the gospel, it doesn't end there. He was also raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification, he says. And so that kind of piqued my, my curiosity. And I wondered, particularly this time of year as we're celebrating uh, the resurrection of Christ, I wondered why did he say that, raised for our justification? And so in order to answer that and in order to, to uh, think Paul's thoughts uh, after him, to read what he has read, uh, ri- what he has written, I want us to start with that idea. And so what, what does that mean, he was raised for our justification? Why is it so important that Jesus was raised from the dead? Why is Easter, why is Resurrection Sunday so important? It's just another part of the story, and we, we after all, think about the cross most of all. So why the resurrection? Why is the resurrection so important? And so we, we uh, move into chapter 5 of Romans, and, and uh, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be in Adam or in Christ? I've read this section numerous times in my life and have worked through it and studied it. I think it will be good for us to get, a, get a, an overall picture of what's going on in these passages so that we can, we can understand better the entire uh, argument that he's making, which I think, by the way, addresses this question uh, that I asked earlier about our culture. What is, what is reality? What's distinct about Christianity? Is there, is there real truth to it or is it some social thing that we do because of who we are. And so, so Paul starts talking there in, in uh, Romans chapter 5, and he says right off the bat in 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through Jesus because of what Jesus did. And what an amazing truth. We can actually have peace with God that even understanding, which is what came before in Romans, understanding that God really is holy, His standard is ultimate perfection, and none of us can stand under that standard because we ourselves are rebels, we're sinners. How can we stand? We, we've actually made ourselves enemies of God by the way we act, by, by, this, by our sin, by our very sin nature. We've made ourselves God's enemies, and yet here we are, because of Christ, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how he starts his argument. And there's great joy in that. And there is, there is a, a wonderful truth that, that he's explaining there. We have peace with God through faith in Christ. It's not because of something that we did. Romans is very clear about that, that this is not something we accomplished on our own, that we cleaned up our act enough so that God said, all right, I guess I'll let you into my presence. It's not because of us. Look at, look at verse 8 in chapter 5. No. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here we were, God's enemies. And that's when Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And so this is, this is God moving toward us, right? We, we don't have a sin problem, by the way, just because we sin. We inherited our sin nature and we inherited the guilt that comes with it because of our relationship to Adam. So what does it mean to be in Adam? Well, he says there in, in, in 519, he makes an interesting statement. He says, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's going to paint a picture here of what it means to be in Adam. 
And then he's going to talk in a moment about what it means to be in Christ. There's a, there's a biblical concept called federal headship that we don't tend to think in terms of. But what that means is that the, your federal representative can, uh, by his own actions or by entering into a covenant or something like that, bind you to it which is kind of the case with us if we think about the federal government. If there's a deal uh, made, some economic deal or military deal or some declaration of war or something like that that our government makes, we're kind of bound to it, right? So if, if suddenly our country declared war on Antarctica, which of course couldn't happen, that's why I chose that one. But if he did that and you were traveling in Antarctica as an American, all of a sudden you're, you're the enemy, and so you have been bound and you suffer the consequences because of being, in, uh, being an American. Well, it's similar with us. Look at, uh, look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The point is here that our federal head, the representative of us, was Adam himself. And if you've read more than three pages of the Bible, you know that didn't go well right? As our federal head, he enters into a particular situation that has consequences for us as those who are in Adam, we are born that way. And so the sin that he enters into when he disobeys God has impact for us. That applies to us. And so that's a problem for all of us. And who's related to Adam? Everybody. And so that's the way we're born. And so he is our federal head. And so uh, we participate um, in the consequences of his sin, the result of what he has chosen. And by the way, we freely participate in the sin itself, don't we? Right? It's not just, oh, that mean old Adam over there. I'm such a good guy. I mean, if I weren't in Adam and didn't have the consequences or the guilt that comes from him, I'd be good to go. No, we all know that's not the case. We look at ourselves and we look at other people. It's sometimes easier to look at other people and identify their sin. But if you think about it, they're looking at you and seeing yours. So it kind of comes out in the wash. We're sinners. We participate in it. And later on, Paul is going to talk about the wages of sin being death. What we earn for our sin is death. So we deserve judgment and death from God by virtue of our being in Adam's family. So that's what it means to be in Adam. That applies to everybody, and it's bad news. But he's also talking in this same chapter, he's talking about what it means to be in Christ. Because God is not done at that point. He's not done at the point where, where you have guilt because of your federal head, because of, because of Adam who has entered into sin because of you, or on your behalf, and then you participating in it. He's not done at that point. He makes provision for a different way by means of a free gift the free gift of Christ's righteousness to us. Look at 515. The the free gift is not like the trespass. So he's contrasting being in Adam versus being in Christ. And he says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So in Christ, we escape the judgment that is ours by being in Adam. So when we enter into Christ, we are freed from that. We have life where in Adam we had death. We have justification before God where in Adam we had judgment. We are free 
And so being in Christ has wonderful, wonderful consequences for us, so much so that Paul would use the word abounding, like multiplying, overflowing, pouring out. And that's what's ours in Christ. And so we had received this when we were in Adam, but now by faith in Christ, we receive these things. And that's how he could say at the beginning of chapter 5, we've been justified by faith. And, and because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he talks about being in Adam, and then he talks about being in Christ. Those who remain in Adam remain in sin, and thus they receive death and condemnation. And those who by faith are in Christ receive grace and life and a verdict of righteous before God. So, for those who are in Christ and they've been freed from that, what's their relationship with sin? That's the second question I want to ask. Since the grace of God has been made even more beautiful by its backdrop of sin, it's, it's abounding in, contra- in contrast to the death that was ours in sin, what's the relationship then between those who are in Christ and sin? Because we who are in Christ are well aware there is sin, even in my life. So what's the relationship between those two? And I want to talk about that question. That's what chapter 6 really is all about, particularly the first part there. He says in, the very, uh, in, in 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue at sin that grace may abound? Because we've been set free after all, right? We have life now where we had death before and where we had judgment before condemnation. Now we have a declaration of being righteous before God. So should we just keep on sinning? After all, it's that sin backdrop that makes the grace of God so wonderful. Maybe we should just continue in sin that grace may abound. And that's the question that he asks there. And so what's our relationship with sin? What is the relationship between the believer and sin? Well, the answer comes there in, in verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Part of being in Christ means that you have life, but there's an aspect of death also, that you are dead to sin. How, how does that work? Do you just decide, I'm dead to you, sin. I'm not going to do that anymore. Is that, is that what it means? Is he, is he saying conjure up feelings of, of, of animosity towards sin? Is that what he's saying? Well, it's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is us in Christ having died to sin. That was what was pictured in baptism this morning. As I dunked the, the candidates under the water, that's a picture of entering into death with Christ, right? That, of being buried with Him, of going under with Him. And so we are considered to have died with Christ. Look at verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. And then he draws a conclusion in in verse 7. He says, one who has died has been set free from sin. There's an actual death that took place. It was Christ's death and you are united to him and therefore you died with Christ to sin. There's an actual reality of something that actually happened for those who were in Christ. There's a, a freedom from sin because of the death that they have. But not only did we die with Christ, but we were also raised with Him. So there's death, but there's also a life relationship. He continues in verse 8, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. There's a life that's going to be given to us by our being united with Him. So there was an actual death to sin. That's what the going under the water pictures. It pictures going 
to death with Christ, but then I, I don't hold them there. That would be a different kind of service that wouldn't be good to you know, test their lung capacity. We, you don't keep them under there. You pull them out because it's a picture of new life, being raised to newness of life in Christ. And so that's what's going on there. We believe that if we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. And so by dying to sin with Christ, we're no longer under the rule of sin. We're not under slavery to sin anymore. We've died to that. We've been set free from that. And so therefore, in in 6.12, he's going to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Let, Let not sin, because it no longer has dominion. It can't make you do anything. You can allow it. You can give it some some temporary authority because you acquiesced, because you agreed to it, but it didn't make you do anything because you've been set free. You've been set free and you've been raised with Christ and so therefore let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. It no longer has dominion over you. So that's the relationship with with sin. Well, what about the relationship with righteousness? Okay, we've talked about about what, what it means to be in Christ and the relationship with sin. What about a relationship with righteousness. If that's the relationship the believer has with sin, that is that he's dead to it and then he's been made alive, what's the connection with us and a life that reveals righteousness? Right? We see there's a direction going. We've died to sin. Then how do, how do we understand righteousness? Well, first of all, the first picture he uses is a picture of slavery. He says in verses 17 and 18, you who were once slaves of sin when you were in Adam, become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Become slaves of righteousness. So you, you used to be a slave of sin when you were in Adam. Now in Christ, you have become a slave of righteousness. So you are, you've entered into a new kind of slavery. And it's a good slavery. When we were in Adam, we offered our bodies as willing slaves to sin, to sin however and to whatever extent we chose. But now that we are in Christ, we freely offer our bodies, our whole lives to be obedient to righteousness instead. And so we've been set free, but we've been not just set free to to be ultimately and absolutely free. We've actually entered into another kind of slavery, but it's a slavery to righteousness. And so there is a picture of slavery that goes there. He calls us slaves of righteousness in that we have been made obedient to it. It is the one that has dominion over us. No longer sin. Righteousness has dominion over us. And so there's a slavery. But there's also a freedom aspect. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So when we were over here in Adam, we were free in regard to righteousness. Righteousness had no dominion over us. It could insist whatever it wanted uh, in our lives. And we weren't going to follow that. We were going to do what we wanted to do. We were going to obey sin because we were under the dominion of sin. And so we were slaves of sin. And when that was the case, we were free in regard to righteousness. You, you served your master, sin, and you didn't give any regard to righteousness. Didn't really care. I mean, you might have wanted to do some good things, maybe so that other people would look at you a certain way or so that you would have certain benefits or perhaps so that you would feel good about yourself. So it's not that you ran around doing every possible evil thing that that was imaginable, but you were obedient to sin and you served it. And he says that the reward of your efforts was death. 
That's what you got from it. Slavery to God means freedom from the dominion of sin. And with that change also comes a change in the reward we see we receive. Look at look at uh, verse 22. He says, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So you've been freed, sprung from that situation, but you've been made slaves of God. And then he talks about the, the wage that comes with that in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we were busy earning death, receiving that as our reward. And now in Christ, it's eternal life that we received. It's a free gift from God. And so we understand the idea of wages, of course. You, you do the work, you get the pay, right? And that's the image that Paul uses of sin, that our sinning earns us our wages, and our wages would be death. What about obeying God's law? Is that how we earn? Does that, what does that earn for us when we obey God's law? Do we merit God's favor by obeying His standard, which is the law? Is that how that works, that I, I stop doing this and I stop sinning and therefore I no longer receive those wages of death? Instead, I obey God and therefore I receive the wages from Him of eternal life. Is that how that program works? And so that, of course, raises our question uh, about our relationship to the law. In other words, in Christ, do we look to the law to help us gain God's favor? Did God spring us? from this relationship to sin so that we could then accomplish for ourselves or new things by obeying the law? Well, no, in Christ we are dead to it. Look at 7.1. So we're moving on through. Look at 7.1. He says the law is binding on a person as long as that person lives. So how can you escape the law? Decide, I don't want to follow that law. (laughs) No, you're still under the law. You're just going to be under the penalty portion of that law right? We understand that. You can't just opt out of the speed limit someday because, you know, you really don't feel like obeying that law that day. Well, okay, don't obey that law, but you're going to deal with the consequences, right? And so we are, the law is binding as long as a person lives. And that would mean that we would be stuck in a position of law keeping to earn God's favor until we finally die, right? That, that the law has, has say over us. And so we would be in that position. Well, I've got to keep the law in order to get the right kind of wages that I want. That's not the picture that he gives here. He says in 7.4, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. You've died. So remember, you, the law has effect over you. It has, it has dominion over you. It's binding on you as long as you're alive. Well, good news for those who are in Christ. You have died. It is no longer effective. It is no longer in effect over you. It is not binding to you. Because we are united with Christ by faith, we are also united with Him in His death. And Paul had said earlier in 6.3 that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death. So in Christ, we've died. And so where it was binding while we were alive, in that sense, it is no longer binding. His death counts as our death. So we are dead to it. And thus we are released from the law. We're no longer under bondage to it. Look at 7, 6. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So we've been released from it. It it no longer has that same application to us. It no longer has dominion over us. We've been set free because we've died to it. And therefore, 
it is not binding on us anymore. Well, what's the problem with the law? I mean, this, the law comes from God, and God speaks true things, and He gives us the law and tells us His expectations. So what's the problem with the law, that it would, that it would uh, result in, in our uh, uh, sin and death situation that we've been talking about? In, in other words, the question is, what is the connection between law and sin? Why won't the law, why won't keeping the law cut it in earning God's favor? And he's, the way he says it in chapter 7 and verse 7 is, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? If it results in sin in us, if it results in a problem, if it, if it has consequences of death for us, is there a problem with the law? Is the law sin? Of course, he says, by no means. By no means. That's not the case at all. And the problem that, that is going on here is, first of all, that there's a bait and switch kind of thing going on. The law commands us what to do or not to do. And by the way, it's perfectly good for God to command us what to do and not to do. That is a good thing. God gets to do that. He made us. And so he, he gets to do that. But the problem is, it's going to come a little bit later. Look what he says in 7.12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is a good thing. The problem lies elsewhere. Look what he says in 7.10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Well, how, how is it that something that is good and right and true and spiritual could result in death to me? What's the problem? What's going on? Look at 7.13, the second half there. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What's going on here is some kind of spiritual judo that's going on where what is intended for my good, what is spoken for my what is a good and right and true and spiritual commandment actually gets used as a weapon that results in my own death. It gets flipped around and used on me. And so when that happens, we see the depth of the depravity of sin that could take something good and pure and right and cause it to kill you. And so we see just how deep sin is. We see how dark and how deadly it is. So there's a bait and switch that goes on there. Well, the problem is there's also an accomplice. There's an accomplice inside us that ensures that we fall into this deadly trap. And that accomplice, that accomplice is our flesh. Look what he says in 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into sin. The law is a good thing. The law is a right thing. It's even spiritual. The problem is that it is outside of us. And it requires our cooperating in order for it to be effective. That's the problem. That's where we run into an issue. We are the weak link. We are the weak link. We can't get away from that weak link. Look at 722. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What a place to be. There's a good law been given to me, and if I will do it, I will live. But it requires my action. It requires my participation. It requires me to step up and, and bridge that gap and do it. 
and I can't. And I prove that again and again. The flesh is an accomplice of this sin. And so, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Well, look at 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That picture of struggling under the law is removed because we are in Christ Jesus. How can there really be no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Do you realize how that sounds to people who, who, who don't, uh, don't believe this? It sounds like you're saying, well, if I do this thing, I escape all consequences. Of course I'm going to do that thing and escape all those consequences. That's what it sounds like. To someone who's hearing this maybe for the first time or, uh, or they don't believe it. And they're thinking, you Christians, you've got it good. All you say is, I believe, and you think you're good to go. How is it possible that there could really be no condemnation for those who are in Christ? We'll look at chapter 8 and verse, verses 3 through 4. This is about a requirement being fulfilled. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled by Christ on our behalf. And we who are in Christ have that applied to us. That's an amazing truth, by the way. That's an amazing truth, especially if you've really been wrestling through the argument that he's been making. Why is it that the law that's a good thing, God telling me to do a good thing, results in my death? How can that be? And why can I not keep the law? Why don't I measure up? Because of my flesh. And there's a... there's an, The flesh and sin work together and use the law in a, in a way that results in my death. So where's my hope? Well, my hope is in Christ. Because I am in Christ. Because the righteousness that He accomplished, what He did in His life of obeying God, where I have not done that, and where you have not done that, He obeyed God always. That gets applied to our account by faith. Because we are in Christ. And the death that He died for sin, not His own, but for ours, the penalty that we should have paid, He pays, and by faith, the payment of that penalty is applied to our account so that we have His righteousness in life and we have His righteousness in death applied to us so that we who are in Christ now have no condemnation because the righteous requirement of the law has been met in Christ. That's an amazing thing. And so the core truth of Christianity, what we're really talking about is to whom will we look for salvation? Are we going to look to ourselves? Are we going to look to our own flesh? Well, Paul has made it quite clear what we should understand in our own lives that really I don't measure up when I require that or when I lean upon that. Are we going to look to the efforts of the flesh? Are we going to look to our law-keeping? Or will we look to Christ and what He's already accomplished? Of course we're going to look to Christ and what He's already accomplished. We're going to put our faith in Him as the only way I can have peace with God. The only way I can be declared right before God is, is by looking to Him and what He has done. And so the question there, to whom will we look for salvation, is the same question that we ask when we ask about the Christian life. How do we live as Christians? The question is, to whom will we look 
for the righteousness, for righteousness in the Christian life. To live a righteous life, who are we going to look to? Will we look to the flesh? That is, will we look to our own law-keeping? Couldn't do it before, but now I've been forgiven, and so I can. Or somehow it's counted as measuring up, or somehow that will uh, please God. I will be able to accomplish favor. I will be able to accumulate favor. Are we going to look to ourselves to measure up somehow? Or will we, again, continue to look to Christ and what He has accomplished? That's why it's important for us to remember that Jesus was obedient throughout his life. He wasn't only obedient when he went to the cross. He was obedient throughout his life. He was actively obedient to God the whole time. And by faith in Christ, that active obedience is applied to our lives. Because are you actively obedient all the time? If you are, I want, I, you should come preach. <laughs> no. But his active obedience is applied to your account by faith in Christ. So are we going to look to ourselves, or are we going to look to Christ? Well, that's the, that's the question that Paul addresses in, uh, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What's the difference? In, in Adam, we looked to ourselves. We, we ignored God's standard. And we, we really wanted our own standard. We looked to ourselves. We looked to our own accomplishment. We looked to what we could do, what we could accumulate or whatever. And that's the way of death. But in Christ, how do you enter into Christ? Do you twist God's arm to make it so that he must let you in? Of course not. You come to him by faith realizing, I'm dead. <laughs> and you come to faith in Christ. You, you, you trust him. And you look to him and what he's accomplished. And by doing so, that's, that's called having your mind set on the Spirit. You're looking to what God has accomplished because what I accomplished didn't result in what I wanted it to result in. So I look away from that. And I look to Him and I trust in Him. So the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a, there's a, a truth here about God acting to, to transfer us from being in Adam to being in Christ. That's not the topic of our message today, but there's, a, there's a, big, uh, a big movement of God so that all of this, this whole picture of salvation, is not God making a plan and then us agreeing, hey, that's a really good plan, and joining on. This is all of God, Him being merciful and gracious towards us. So we talked about that requirement being, fulf being fulfilled in us, that we, because we are in Christ, have that righteous requirement of the law met, so it therefore is no longer dependent upon me. It is Christ himself. Look at what he says in verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Amen. He gives you life. There is life in Christ where there was death before. He gives you life and you are raised to newness of life. And that's what he says in verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we continue on in the Christian life the same way we entered it. By realizing the flesh is not going to cut it. 
I'm going to look to Christ and I'm going to look to what he's accomplished. I'm going to look to him and the fact that he makes me alive in Christ so that I'm now spiritually alive. I have life where I had death before. He's at work now accomplishing in me the things that I couldn't do before. He's at work. And so I look to him and that's the difference between am I going to set my mind on the flesh? Am I going to trust myself or am I going to trust in the spirit? And of course, we're going to trust in the spirit for those who are in Christ because we realize what the consequences were. We realize what the wages were. We realize how it was working out for us when we were in Adam. And so we, we continue on in the Christian life in the same way we entered it, which is looking to Christ and what he's accomplished. And so... That's all about the resurrection of Christ. And so when we, when we come together on Easter and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, it's not just because we're, we're, we're putting a stake in the ground that here's another point of truth in the Christian life and this happened historically and things like that, but we're saying that actually all of our spiritual life is tied up in the reality that's, that's talked about and the truth of the resurrection, that we have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. And so because he is raised, therefore we who are in him have been raised and we have peace with God because of him, because of what he's done. And so his resurrection is not just an historical thing. It's not just a thing we remember, but it is the key to us being made right with God. It is the key to us having peace with God. It is the key to us walking and living the Christian life is the resurrection of Christ because he was raised from the dead. And so he also will raise our mortal bodies. He will give life to our members in this life and in the life to come, he will raise us so we have resurrection after we die. And so that's why, that's why Resurrection Sunday is such a big deal because we're talking about the key. We're talking about the heart of Christianity. We, we think a lot about the cross. I hope we think a lot about the cross and we should. But the resurrection proves that that God agreed and accepted the payment that Jesus made. And the resurrection, because we are in Christ, provides life to us. There would be no life if it weren't for the resurrection of Christ. And so we, we rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and we celebrate it. And that's why we say, He is risen. That was okay. But we remember the resurrection of Christ. That it, it's, it's, a, it's a central, key, core fact of Christianity. It's, it's, a, it, it's how the whole gospel works. It's how the gospel is applied to you and how it brings life to you is by the resurrection. And so we have opportunity here as we come to the Lord's table and we're going to, if I could have the men go ahead and come forward who are going to serve, we get to uh, do baptisms on this day. We get to preach on the resurrection. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper all on the same day. And this is a fitting thing that we celebrate communion together on Resurrection Sunday. Because by faith, we are in Christ, not in Adam. And that means we have the blessings of grace and life and justification before God because of what Christ has done and that we celebrate now with the Lord's Supper. Because He died and we Christians are in Him, we are dead to sin. Freed from the death and hopelessness of the law and freed to be slaves of righteousness instead. This is because of what Christ has done. Instead, because of Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. He made the payment. 
And he made the payment in full. So much so that he could say, it is finished. It's done. It's paid. And those things all find their culmination in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And we get to celebrate both of those today. And so this is, this is a celebration of what it means to be in Christ. And therefore, this, this that we are about to do is a communion. It is, it is a, it, it, it's something that has to do with being in Christ. And so this is a celebration for those who are in Christ. If you don't know what that means or you know about yourself that you're not in Christ, that you, you're not a believer in Christ, I, I would encourage you just to let the elements pass and, uh, and not participate. And then come talk to me or, uh, uh, you know, come talk to um, Chris Ward or really any of these men up here. Come talk to us and find out what it means to be in Christ. And then next time we can participate together. This is, this is a communion of, of uh, us communing with the Lord and doing so together for those who are in Christ